Young Criminal Defense Attorney, Neil Rockheim. I'm Neil Rockheim. This is the Killer Cross-Examination Podcast. You can find the podcast on KillerCrossExamination.com, on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, Google, any of the most popular most often listened to platforms for podcasts. If you listen to this podcast, you know that I've been called the Rockweiler. It's my, based on my unique, aggressive courtroom style. And my cross-examination style has been called killer cross-examination. I wrote about it. I talked about it. And then eventually, this podcast was the natural progression, a natural evolution to bring stories from the trenches to you. And one of the things that uh, I'm going to try to do during this episode is I'm going to talk about a specific issue that comes up in trials, a specific problem that I have witnessed in trials and that I'm currently witnessing in one of the most followed, most talked about, most anticipated criminal trials in recent memory. And that's the trial of Robert Durst. And the topic that I want to talk to you about is something that I find absolutely grating, grating, annoying. I mean, you want to talk about like fingernails on a chalkboard. This is it. And I want to talk to you about the speaking objection and how some prosecutors in some cases use what we call the speaking objection to attempt to overcome and overbear the will of, of, uh, of the judge, to get around judicial rulings, to attempt to impose their will on a judge so that the defense is, is in, in some ways almost left to have to, to, to hear the prosecutor give these mini opening statements, mini exclamation, uh, explanations, mini offers of proof throughout the trial. It is unfair. And if you're a trial advocate like me, if you're someone that appreciates what goes on in the courtroom, it is grating, it is annoying, it's unfair, and it's wrong. Now, let me give you a little bit of a backdrop. I want to give you a little bit of a backdrop to this, to the, the Robert Durst case. It's an amazing, amazing story. So Robert Durst was the, the heir uh, one of the, the heirs to the, the Seymour Durst real estate fortune. Um, he was an eccentric guy. And he's on trial for the murder of Susan Berman, one of the only people that considered Robert Durst to be a friend. But this isn't any normal trial. This is a trial of a case in which Susan Berman was killed years was killed decades ago. Robert Durst, this wealthy heir to uh, a real estate fortune in, in uh, a New York real estate fortune, was suspected of murdering three people, his wife, uh, a, a man in Galveston, Texas named Morris Black, and Susan Berman, his lifelong friend. He was actually tried by jury in the Morris Black case in Galveston, Texas. 
He admitted to killing Morris Black, but he claimed that he did so in self-defense. He had fled from the scene and he had actually dismembered Morris Black's body and the body sunk and he sunk the body in Galveston Bay. He went to trial and in one of the most improbable, unlikely verdicts in the history of the criminal justice system, Durst was acquitted of murder, even though he hid the crime, even though he hid the murder, even though he, he, he attempted to clean the scene, even though he, he sawed up and dismembered Morris Black's body, and even though he put Morris Black's body and tried to sink it in Galveston Bay, he was acquitted of murder. Unbelievable. His lawyers in the the murder case included Dick DeGaren, a legendary lawyer from Houston, Texas. Now, his relationship with his wife is the, 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 the government's theory is, is really at the heart of all of this. It is the state's theory that Robert Durst killed his wife, Kathy Durst. She disappeared. Her marriage to Robert Durst and her disappearance are the subject of a movie called All Good Things, starring Ryan Gosling. The disappearance of Kathy Durst and um, his acquittal in the, the murder of Morris Black comprise three episodes of Law and Order. And the Jinx, which was a documentary done by the director of the, the All Good Things movie, in which Robert Durst actually participated in a series for HBO, ended with Robert Durst wearing a hot mic, walking into the bathroom and saying for all to hear, although arguably unbeknownst to him, I killed them all, of course. And the trial is incredible because in this trial, Cold Case Special Prosecutor John Lewin with the, 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 in, in Los Angeles, California, is a cold case specialist. He's got a host of lawyers supporting him, and he's going up against one of the all-time legal teams. I mean, at least in reputation and in name, Dick DeGaren, David Chesnoff, and more all representing Robert Durst. I mean, this trial has it all. And the, the prosecution is, get this, is attempting to prove with witnesses whose memory, who, who were present and around activity back in the, in the 70s and the 80s, they're going back 30, 40 years in an effort to attempt to prove that Kathy Durst's disappearance was not accidental, and they're trying to say that Robert Durst killed his wife, Kathy, and that he then killed Morris Black. And then when Susan Berman was uh, alleging that she was going to, or intimating that she was going to come forward and was going to disclose information about her helping Robert Durst in killing his wife, the government's theory is, is that he flew to Los Angeles and killed his friend Susan, Durman, Susan Berman in order to keep it quiet. Think about that. 
These are old alleged crimes, one that's never been solved, the other in which Durst was actually acquitted by a jury of his peers in Galveston, Texas, in this improbable not guilty verdict. And the last is this murder of his, his, uh, his, his friend, Susan Berman, who, whose murder went unsolved for years until Durst took part, until he took part in the jinx. It's un what an unbelievable story that is playing out in a Los Angeles courtroom. But I want to tell you that there's something going on in the middle of, of the trial. And it's these speaking objections. Now, let me tell you what, what I mean by speaking objections. I'm going to actually try to work through. I, I, I haven't, I've done it once before, but, I, but it wasn't easy to do. Um, I'm going to try to work through some actual footage of the Durst trial so that I can show you what I'm talking about, about speaking objections and why they're so annoying and they're so dangerous to justice and why when a, a lawyer or a prosecutor stands up and just can't resist him or herself from making this speaking objection and when a judge rules and as opposed to saying, thank you, Your Honor, and accepting the ruling, they just want to keep pushing forward and try to overcome the will of the, of the, the, of the judge and how annoying and, 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 uh, and difficult and interfering and offensive and it's like nails on a chalkboard. I want to show you how this is playing itself out. And in a way, this trial is almost in some ways um, I'm out of control. It seems in some ways to me watching it, and you be the judge too, the judge is losing control of the courtroom with the speaking objections and the back and forth between these, these lawyers. So what's an objection? An objection is where there's a, a rule of evidence. And we have rules of evidence in order to keep, to allow what we say is reliable evidence, some evidence in and some evidence out. And and lawyers are allowed, as you I'm sure know, are allowed to make objections when the other side, through a question, an argument, a statement, um, or questioning of a witness, when something runs afoul in that lawyer's opinion of, of the rules of evidence. And typically, it's objection, and then you cite the basis for the objection. If you're the lawyer, you're sitting down, you stand up, you say objection, you cite the basis for the objection and the rule, the other side, then it maybe has a chance to respond for one moment, and then the judge rules. And then everybody moves on to the next question. Now, um, you've all seen movies. We've all seen movies where lawyers make objections. Remember from the civil action where uh, Robert Duvall is, plays that part of the, the corporate lawyer, and he sits there, and his lesson is that even if you fall asleep in the courtroom, the first thing you had to do when you wake up is to say objection, even if there's nothing in the air, even if there's no question put to a witness, there's nothing being said. And we've all heard objection, 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 hearsay, objection, argumentative, objection, asked to answer. I mean, we've objection, badgering the witness, objection, speculation, objection, relevance. But we've heard this over and over and over again. And we see it in TV shows and movies. And usually movies and TV shows over-dramatize and overplay like the, the objections. But in this trial, the objections are taking on a whole new context, a whole, they've gone to their plane like 15th degree chess with objections because the lawyers aren't just objecting. 
In fact, what the prosecutor is really doing is not just objecting. What he does is he objects and he speaks. And when he speaks, he attempts to talk over the judge and he, and he attempts to, to really denigrate, in a way, the defense. And at times, the defense is sort of taking it and trying to point out to the judge that, and I, and I think it's strategy, but trying to point out that this guy is just unfair. This guy is, is pursuing this cold case, um, a, a murder in which he's trying to undo, in a way, an acquittal. And he's trying to tie a missing person case to Robert Durst. And he's trying to say it's all connected. This guy is trying to wrap his arms around 50 years of, of, of action. And it's incredible to watch, but you can tell he is really invested. He is, this is his case. He's the one that came up with this theory. He's the one that put it all together. And it is his case. And he looks and sounds like a guy who is invested, maybe even overly invested in the outcome of the case, so much so that when he objects, he doesn't just make an objection, he wants to talk. And it's called a speaking objection. And most lawyers and judges wouldn't stand for it for one second. Listen to how this is playing out in the cases in, um, in, the, in the Durst case. I'm gonna try to pull up, here's a scene from the Durst case now. Okay, you don't expect this to be heard. You know, the plaintiff's lawyer was very persuasive. Oh, we got, an, uh, got a, a YouTube ad. Sorry about that, folks. He doesn't expect this to be approved, is what you're telling me. You're telling me he's not expecting to present this evidence. Then don't. This is all, this is the defense's opening statement, the prosecutor making an objection, the judge sort of going back and forth with this prosecutor and the prosecutor, it, literally is about to, to, well, he's about to say or intimate that the defense is doing something it shouldn't. Listen. That was a classic speaking objection. The prosecutor literally objecting 
arguing and saying that the defense had done something that he wasn't supposed to do, was attempting to introduce testimony that wasn't going to be testimony in the case. I mean, it is unbelievable to see that play out right in front of the jury. You got to understand, folks, that the jury is hearing all of this. And eventually, they're going to get some clue. They're going to form some opinion. Even if the judge tells them not to, they're going to form some opinion about what these objections mean. Is the prosecutor so gallant and is he so fighting for justice that he's that he's he, he won't be deterred? He's just dogged. He's just like McGruff, the crime dog. He's just on the case and he's going to pursue it. And he's did that hell be damned. And he's going to talk over the judge and he's going to demean the lawyer. Or are they going to side with the, the, the gentlemanly lawyer from Texas who looks and says, I, you know, almost like judges are speaking objection. I don't get it. Are they going to be offended by the fact that the prosecutor is talking over the judge? You know, that if this were a defense lawyer talking over the judge or talking back to the judge, the jury might immediately hate him. But in our legal system, prosecutors have sort of an advantage in that way because they come into, they come into it with this self-appointed white hat. How is the jury viewing what this prosecutor is doing? Think about, think about that. The speaking objection. Do you like it? I don't. Do you like the way that the prosecutor just interrupts and talks over the judge? Well, if you didn't like that one, let's see what you think of this one. Again, this is Dick DeGuerin giving another part of his opening statement on behalf of his client, Robert Durst. And listen to this exchange. That's what the evidence is going to show. Go ahead. Before his lawyers could get there, Mr. Lewin and his crew got there and started questioning him but early in the morning. In that statement that there's something inappropriate, Mr. Guerrero is well aware that a painful Now, do you think that the prosecutor is done? He's just told the judge that this is not going to happen. He's, he is, in fact, told the judge that this will not happen, even though in the courtroom, the judge is the one who decides what happens. The judge is the one who makes the rules. And watch what this prosecutor who just, the judge just ruled. Watch what the prosecutor does next. To show that Mr. Lewin interrogated 
May I stop my thought? The jury that objection was sustained about that comment. That is a copyright to not just sit out there. All right, right. Thanks for that, please. Ladies and gentlemen, disregard any argument that you've heard. Do you see? Do you think the judge is being fair? When you see a, a, a prosecutor object, there's argument. The judge has to shush the prosecutor multiple times. Then after shushing the prosecutor multiple times, he tries to tell him to stop and he calls him by name. Then he specifically says no speaking objections. The defense lawyer continues and then the prosecutor actually interrupts again and makes another argument. This is why speaking objections, this is why in the way some judges, when they don't shut prosecutors down who are doing this, why it emboldens them. I can think of a prosecutor right now that I opposed in court who seemed to do the same thing. That this particular prosecutor, as we were arguing, would lose an objection. And then rather than accept it, would continue to fight on hands on hips, pouting, complaining, talking back, attempting to, to beat the, the, the judge down to change his ruling. Now, I want you to see what happens when they take a break in the same case in which the prosecutors just told the judge what is going to happen, has just made a speaking objection, has just talked back to the judge. The judge has just told them, you're not making speaking objections. The prosecutor makes like a hand gesture, like, you know, showing his displeasure with the, the judge's ruling. And these are not rookie lawyers. These are some of the most experienced lawyers in the country. And they take a sidebar. And I want you to see what the how it plays out. Your Honor, what you will not have presumes that you may tell me what to do, which you may not. So let's stop it. It is a what is it for? Steve and Dave use eToro to trade cryptocurrencies. Steve does extensive re. And that's what's happening. You can see it. And David Chesnoff, a seasoned lawyer from Las Vegas, calls the judge. I doesn't know. 
doesn't he, he just he describes what's happened in a very polite way but dick de garen dick de garen the old uh the old warhorse from houston he's going to put it a little more plainly see if you agree I was going to say it in a little bit more colloquial terms. I think he just beat you down. No, that's completely disrespectful. <clears throat> the court has let the defense litigate some of their motions 20 times, and the court continues. In the end, Ron, even what I've asked for is the stable. I mean, this is playing out in a high profile, highly watched, highly anticipated case in the, the murder of a woman whose murder was the subject of, a, of television shows and miniseries and movies. And the bickering back and forth is extraordinary. And the judge doesn't seem to, you tell me, I'd love to hear your comments about this. Does the judge appear to have his arms around this problem? Is any of his effort to silence the, the, the prosecutor or to get the prosecutor to discontinue the speaking objections or talking back to him, is any of that working? It, is, it, is it gaining control over any of the, of the witnesses? Is it gaining control over any of the lawyers? Or does this appear to be a, a situation where the, the case is just out of control? Well, I, I want you to watch a, another segment in which a witness is testifying, and you tell me if this is, appears to be a, an epidemic in this trial, because it appears to be that to me. This is the this is a, a witness, woman named Helen Block, who had uh, gone to medical school with uh, Kathy Durst. And part of the, to set this up, part of the, 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 the government's theory, the state's theory is that Kathy Durst was in medical school and she just didn't show up one day. And so part of the state's theory is, is that, well, she was, she was, she wouldn't have not just showed up. All, all of these people who have seen and been around her when they were in medical school knew her that she wouldn't have just abandoned uh, her, her residency or rotation, I should say, uh, without having called and notified her team that it was very unusual that she didn't call and tell anybody. And they're asking these people to recall moments from like 30 to 40 years ago. And this particular incident is going to be a discussion about what did, what, what did she observe uh, and what did her fellow law student or fellow medical students observe when Kathy Durst walked into a cafeteria? And let's see if even by this time, if the, the, the judge is stopped the speaking objections. Back at that time, was there? This one's the perfect gift for the friend who's been getting a little too comfortable during quarantine. Maybe your son. Uh, there societal even medical school pressure for women who were taking that route to prove that they were as tough or tougher than their male colleagues 
I'm not even sure how this sort of question is even allowed. I'm not even sure how it's possible for a prosecutor to ask a generalized question of a witness about the general, the general state of, of culture for medical students back in the 70s. But apparently that's what's going on in this trial. Witnesses are being are allowed to, to, to talk about things that happen, like, or not even that happen, just the general culture. And then the arguments are that that if Kathy Durst or Bob Durst didn't act in that way or something was inconsistent with that general culture, that that must be a, a fact either in favor of Mr. Durst or in this case, uh, proving that Kathy Durst's disappearance was intentional. Dick DeGaren's about to object. Listen to this and listen to how the prosecutor reacts. Now, the prosecutor has actually won the objection. The judge just said overruled. Listen to what the prosecutor does, even after he's won the objection. I mean, he's, he's still, he won and he's arguing in front of, this is all taking place in front of the jury. Don't you think the jury gets some impression? What is their impression of this? None of this is appropriate. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, I think people back then would be less likely to report. I mean, they're not even talking about facts. They're just talking about like general culture. But the prosecutor, you know, see, sometimes people say prosecutors get away with a little bit more in court. Let's see if how he handles this particular moment with Helen Block. Now, did you hear that? The judge said sustained. Dick DeGaren objected, said hearsay, said the question calls for other people to have to, to, to for her to repeat what other people speculated about and said and collectively thought about Kathy Durst taking off her glasses and having a black eye. The question being put to this woman, this, uh, this witness, is when Kathy Durst took off her glasses, and, um, and that's the scene the prosecutor is trying to paint, is that when she took off her glasses and she had a black eye, everybody together thought, oh, she's been a victim of domestic violence. In order to get that in, he has to actually ask her about these facts, about what Kathy Durst did. Then they have to get who was there. Then he has to actually get, get this witness to admit that they all, everybody else besides her looked. And then they have to get that they all collectively gasped or said the same thing. They all have to get that they reacted and what their reactions were and what their comments to, were to each other or shared collectively or individually. I mean, it, it's just unbelievable that this is what this case is coming down to. And I want you to see that when this, Witness, uh, when the pro when the defense lawyer rightly objects that the judge said sustained, 
and listen to whether the prosecutor accepts that ruling or was Dick DeGuerin right that he just continues to sort of push on and push back against the judge. Let's see. I'm sorry, the off-call truth of the matter asserted, but I'm not going to be offering for truth of the matter asserted. Their, their reaction to seeing it is what will be relevant. That's here. The objective on your saying when there has not been a statement that's been offered yet, you call it the question calls for hearsay. You know, the question calls for So do you see the judge ruled again that the question calls for hearsay? Does the prosecutor accept that ruling? No. Now, so he's saying that he wants this witness to repeat what other people said in reaction to Kathy Durst taking off her sunglasses and showing a black eye. So he wants what others said. He wants out-of-court statements, which can be more than just statements. They, had, they can be assertions. They can be reactions. So he wants their reaction to Kathy Durst taking off her glasses. And he wants the reaction. But then he said, knows that that would mean that he's asking this witness to repeat in court under oath what other people who aren't here in court have to say or said. Sounds like hearsay. But then he says it's not being offered for the truth of the matter. And the judge rightly says, well, why are you offering it then? Of course you're offering that. You're offering it not just to show the reaction. You're, of course, you want this woman to repeat that a bunch of people sat around and said, she's, this looks like domestic violence. That's what you want. That's what he's trying to accomplish. He is trying to get this witness to repeat what appear to be out of court statements. And then he's trying to get them in by saying, well, I'm not offering them for the truth of the matter asserted. Well, if you're not offering for the truth of the matter asserted, what relevance do they have? The judge asked this question. Let's see if the prosecutor, remember, he sustained this objection twice already. Let's see if he sticks with it or does the prosecutor kind of talk him out of it? This is going to be relevant because there's an offer of proof individuals. Now, there's an offer of proof coming. This is all taking place in front of the jury. None of it, None of what he's saying has been testified to. This is him telling the judge in front of the jury what the evidence that he's about to introduce is going to be. So the jury's literally hearing like a mini argument. Seeing Kathy Durst with his black eye immediately understood, saw what it was, and were extremely concerned. That is it's relevant because it's what well, it's relevant because it would appear that. A group of medical students are all looking at Kathy Durst thinking uh, she's a victim of domestic violence. Wait, that's the, the that's the inference that a bunch of people were sitting around, looked at her, reacted, and that the that the next step is that a bunch of medical students, see, he wants to tie it in and say that they're medical students, so they must have some credibility as medical students, and that then what they did is that they all said she must be a victim of domestic violence. That is the that's the inference. That sounds like he wants it to be offered for the truth of the matter asserted. But this is all being said in front of the jury. Why is relevant? Sounds like it. Um, okay, well, we'll take one step. Okay, but I think you're going down a road to hearsay. So that particular question is, is, is not. So, okay, 
So the objection was sustained once. It was the judge then said the question calls for hearsay. He goes through a long colloquy with, with John Lewin, and now he's saying that this particular question doesn't call for hearsay. So sounds like he actually is now reversing the two rulings he made. It denies confrontation of somebody else's uh, thoughts or reactions. Uh, I don't think so, but, uh, but that particular question is, uh, is uh, you know, uh, listen very carefully to the question and answer only the question. Cut the block when the other individuals were and they saw the black eye so now he wants her to say did you hear that question that the witness is the, the the assumption in the question was when the other people saw the black guy how can anyone say what the other people saw you could say they were looking in that direction you could even say that there appeared to be a reaction without describing the reaction but he then said He's just now he's far down the field now. He's now asked the question when they saw. So she has to now say the collective they, that's all of them. Maybe did one of them miss it? Did they all see it? Did one draw the other's attention to it? But so they all, when they all saw it, what was their reaction? And now Dick DeGaren's going to object and let's see how he and the judge interact here. That denies confrontation. Okay, so I think it assumes a fact not you're all together, correct? Yes. Kathy ends up uh, removing her sunglasses and all of you see this, is that correct? Yes. Wait, so the judge just said, you haven't established that how it's speculation. How could she testify to what others saw? He then says to clarify it, he says he can lay a foundation, basically. The judge says, go ahead, attempt to lay the foundation. And the foundation is laid by asking the same question. Did they all see it? Should be an objection and a sustained objection to speculation here. What but no, there wasn't. Now he asks the next question and watch the exchange between the lawyers and the judge here. So without, without designation, that's the statements uh, specifically, the uh, coroner they may have reacted with how would be. If they, were, if they respond with words, tell me that, but don't tell me what the words are. My objection, of course, Your Honor, is that the response is hearsay. Uh, facial expressions, whatever happens, that's we can't, I'm cross-examining. Oh, oh, okay, but Ms. Hedgegaard, I think you know that's not hearsay, so interestingly what dick DeGaren is saying is actually a a, a very um a well accepted interpretation of the rules of hearsay hearsay is defined as an out-of-court statement offered for the truth of the matter asserted it doesn't mean a verbal statement and the statement is defined as an assertion could a nod of the head be a statement of course because it, it can it can be communicating an assertion could someone reacting and going, you know, and saying something in response. And Dick DeGaren is trying to point that out to the judge and the judge doesn't just say you're wrong 
or I overruled. He says, I think you know that that's not hearsay. Mr. DeGaren, you know what you're saying. Think about how that plays out for the jury. Mr. DeGaren, you know that what you're saying is not right. And here comes Mr. Lewin, who's now going to give a long proffer in front of the jury. So even if the judge were to sustain the next couple of objections, Mr. Lewin's speaking objection here is going to make the point for the jury. They're going to hear it all. People will be offering what they said because we will not be admitting it for the truth of the matter. Sir, okay, I'll hear you out on that part. But go, go. You want to cut to the chase and explain to me? Okay, then he wants me to approach on this. But the next question is going to be what did they say when they saw the black guy? Well, not the admitting for the truth of the It's their response, and their response is relevant to the process that I just indicated. Okay, you did not, you not, did not believe. Let's, let's not approach. I think we can uh, sort this out here. So you, you haven't given me a, want to sustain the objection unless you give me a, a relevant purpose. Okay, the, the relevant purpose is going to be that the people are alleging that Smith. Wait, I, I thought it was sustained. Then he was going to take him to sidebar. But then probably the thought of a sidebar and slowing this trial down even more, I think can't say for sure but i think my it appears to me that the judge was just trying to resolve it there he says sustain and rather than moving on the prosecutor who has to get every single question he has to argue over every question he argues this one and he gives an offer of proof now the judge invited it the judge who a few moments ago said we don't want any speaking objections no speaking objections now the judge is inviting the prosecutor was seated right there in front of the jury with the witness listening to it all. So if the witness had any doubts about what foundation to lay or what the purpose of her testimony was, if she were inclined at all to take any cues from the prosecutor, she's about to get a, a long-winded uh, speaking objection that could do just that, if that was her inclination. I'm sorry? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm being asked, I'm more than happy to do it at sidebar or here, wherever the court wants me to do it. The court just asked me to do it here, so I can even do it. I only have to recognize one lawyer for, for sidebar. Uh, sidebar. Yeah, let's, let's go uh, sidebar. And uh, Mr. Watts, ladies and gentlemen, there will be a minute or two. We can make a small talk about the case. Oh, so we're going to go to sidebar now? So we just had prosecutor, uh, the judge sustaining a couple of objections, the prosecutor talking, it, unwinding that with a speaking objection, the judge then unwinding, I guess, undoing or reversing or changing his ruling. Then we have the, the judge saying that it's speculation to guess about what other people are looking at, tells the prosecutor to lay a better foundation. The judge goes ahead, the prosecutor goes ahead and he, he asks the same question. The witness answers it and is apparently permitted to ask now we got more objections. And then we're talking about the judge offers sidebar, then says we'll do it here in the present. This is the problem with these speaking objections. And this is a problem with the judge who, and you decide, I have my own opinion, but you think that this, it looks like the, the, this process is playing out orderly. I respect, listen, I respect aggressive advocacy. My nickname is the Rockweiler. I have been known and considered an aggressive courtroom advocate. 
But how is this playing out in front of the jury? How is the jury reacting to this? Does the jury think the prosecutors will get a white hat on and that he's doing a good job and he's just fighting for justice? Do they think that he's annoying and overbearing? Do, are they, do, they, do they think that the gentlemanly uh, sort of the Texas Southern style of the, the defense lawyers is sort of carrying the data. Usually the, the jurors look at a judge and think the judge, they really respect the judge because they assume that to get to a position of being a judge, the judge, you know, must be authoritative and knowledgeable. But is that, do you think that they're, think that the judge is, is reacting appropriately? Do they think that he's being pushed around or that he's being fair? These are all these sorts of dynamics that play themselves out in the middle of a trial. Well, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. But it continues in this case. When prosecutors make speaking objections in my cases, I, I, I want to pull my hair up. I don't do it because I don't have that enough left to pull out. But if I had a flag, I would throw it. Something else. Well, watch how it continued in this trial. This is in the continued cross-examination of Dr. Helen Block. And listen how the prosecutor interacts here. So my question is, state your objection, because there's no right. What are you doing on your phone? I'm sorry, I left a gentleman alone in my apartment, and I'm tracking him to make sure he leaves. Go, 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 Do you see the prosecutor trying to argue, and the judge has to admonish him like you would a a kindergartner like a child who was doing like like uh who was that um the in the in welcome back cotter was it i forget the character's name it was arthur or whatever where he was in the in the in the back and you go ooh, 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 ooh. and the judge is like don't do that don't don't it was a horseshack is that, is that what he was called? Horshack? 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 But you see the judge is reacting like, don't, 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 don't. Like you're almost like you're trying to train a child and the child is not getting the lesson. That objection was overruled. Well, as a doctor, don't you like uh, your patients to describe accurately their symptoms? I like a patient when I have a doctor-patient relationship for them to describe the symptoms, yes. Okay, and as to the statement that Dean Cooperman was not a medical doctor, he's a, a PhD, he was dean of the medical school, wasn't he? Well, I'm sorry, then again, state, say the word objection, state the grounds for the objection. I've been again and explaining it. Statement. 
And if you continue to watch this trial, I just gave you a few tiny snippets from this case, but it continues. Even portions of the trial that were going on today, as I was watching and, and, and preparing to, to talk to you about this, the, the prosecutor continues to make these speaking objections and argue back with the judge, push back against the judge. And, and as Dick DeGaron claims is beating the judge down, forcing rulings to be changed. I'm telling you folks, defense lawyers do that. They get hauled away to the back of the courtroom into the, the lockup area and told to cool down in that area. But this prosecutor is doing that. And when it happens, the lawyers need to immediately continue, unless you're making a calculated decision, a calculated decision, and it's part of your strategy, and you believe the jury is irritated by it, but that's a big risk. The alternative is to attempt to shut it down. You know, it, it, it has a way, particularly when the judge changes his rulings, and at times is allowing the prosecutor to make these statements in front of the jury, you can see what happens. And in the cases where the couple of prosecutors that I've seen do it who have made speaking objections in front of, in front of the jury during cross-examinations of mine, in my opening or in closings, I, I, it's off-putting. It's clearly designed to, 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 to break the momentum of the cross-examiner. But it also gives the, the prosecutor who continues to make those speaking objections an opportunity to make these offers of proof to, to have the, the jury hear what the, the prosecutor's theory is over and over and over again. Gives them more power in the courtroom. You know, there are some judges in cases that I've watched that really take control of the courtroom. And there are, it's a battle often between the lawyers as to who can sort of pull that in that tug of war, who can pull that handkerchief in the middle of the rope, but just a little bit more one way or the other. But most of the judges that I've appeared in front of, the judges that really know how to let the lawyers try a case and, and actually do uh, a good job presiding over trials. And they let that back and forth go. They also have limits. It's when it gets like this, where the prosecutor really is, is pushing the judge, pushing the judge, that it seems like he has an even greater advantage than he ought to have. And this is an incredible case playing out with some of the, the most well-known lawyers in the country. David Chesnoff, Dick DeGuerin, John Lewin, in one of the most uh, anticipated trials in the, the last several years. And this is what the public is seeing as the way the legal system works, the witnesses are just 
it's going so slow and it's, and I don't mind slow. But in a case like this, I, I, I can only imagine what the jurors are sitting there and thinking as they're, as they're watching this play out. What are you thinking as you watch this play out? Are you impressed with the way the judge is handling the case? Do you think that these Texas lawyers, do you think that Dick DeGuerin, who is a legend, and David Chesnoff, who is a legend, these are incredible lawyers that have won incredible acquittals over the years. Um, what's your impression of them from the clips you've seen? What's your impression of John Lewin, this uh, cold case special prosecutor? It's very aggressive prosecutor. What do you think about the fact that this trial is that these witnesses are testifying to, it's just, what do you think a group of people would have done back in the 70s if they had seen and heard about this? These are the kinds of questions that are being asked and answered in that case. It's unbelievable and all there for us to see. I'll be talking more about the Robert Durst trial, about speaking objections, about the performance and this case in the in episodes to come but i wanted you to to hear it from me these speaking objections and as you can see it these are a problem these are a problem they give the side that they give the prosecutor who's who's you know comes into court with self-appointed white hat they give the prosecutor the because he's allowed to do it they give him the appearance of, of knowing what he's talking about of being right of being in control of being in command that just can't be the case, particularly where, particularly where the defendant's liberty is on the line, regardless of what you think about Robert Durst. This is Neil Rockind, and welcome to another, or thank you for, welcome, I'm, I'm already ready to do another show about this, this trial, but this is Neil Rockind. I uh, appreciate you, uh, you, you tuning in, downloading and listening to another episode of Killer Cross-Examination. This case, I broke down the Robert Durst trial and these speaking objections that are, are just taking over the entire trial. If you like this podcast, or you want to listen to more of it, you can go to killercrossexamination.com. You can go to uh, all of your favorite platforms, your podcast platforms like Google, uh, Apple, Spotify, Listen Notes, and others. You can go to YouTube and watch me in the video and watch me break these down. You can watch my previous interviews with some of the, the, the most noteworthy um, uh, legal powers and powerhouses in the, in the country. You can learn more about the legal system and you can learn more about how to get justice in your own lives and more justice in the courtroom. Thanks for tuning in. A podcast by your host, the nationally renowned criminal defense attorney, Neil Rockheim.